Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Journalism, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This episode is a recording of a live event with Monica Guzman, who is the author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times, which was published in 2022 by Ben Bella Press. The event and the conversation were hosted in partnership with the Gather Program, which is an engagement journalism initiative at the University of Oregon's Agora Journalism Center. In this recording that follows, you'll hear questions both from me and from Andrew Duvagal, a journalism professor at the University of Oregon and director of the Gather Program. We also open up the floor for questions towards the end of the conversation, so you'll hear from uh, working journalists as well as practitioners and scholars uh, who are all working at the intersection of journalism and community. So without further ado, here is the conversation with Monica Guzman. Hello, Uh, my name is Andrew Devigal. I'm the director of the Agora Journalism Center and also the executive producer of Gather. Uh, uh, the gathering place. Um, so we want to welcome and uh, for folks, first of all, thank you for showing up and uh, attending this conversation. For folks who may not be familiar with Gather, I wanted to just share that uh, in the uh, in the in the Zoom chat um, and welcome you all to uh, join that conversation um, on Gather uh, to support those community-minded journalists. Um, I also want to uh, thank Moni for taking uh, an hour to join us um, and have this conversation about her book and uh, looking forward to that, uh, to digging in and learning more about what you're learning. But before that, I also want to mention that this is something fairly new here for the Gather Lightning Chat in that we're collaborating with uh, the New Book Network um, and joining us is Jenna Spinelli um, in this conversation. So Jenna, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Excited to be here. Uh, For those of you not familiar with the New Books Network, uh, it is a network of podcasts that cover a variety of books in all academic disciplines. Uh, I'm one of the hosts on the New Books in Journalism channel. I've talked with some folks that will be uh, familiar to to many of you, I suspect. Uh, Jake Nelson, Andrea Wenzel, Nikki Usher, uh, lots of folks. Uh, Thank you for the link, Andrew. You're one step ahead of me. So this conversation uh, with Moni today will also be available uh, on the New Books Network. So uh, with all of that uh, out of the way, let me just say that uh, Monica's book is called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Uh, It was 
published uh, earlier this year by Ben Bella Press, which I believe is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but um, so much to talk about in this book that gets to journalism and democracy and the ways that those two things intersect. And as a way to kind of get into your your background um, a little bit, Moni, you know, you you mentioned in the book that you spent your career as a professional listener, which I think many of us. Uh, on this call today can relate to. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those listening skills, how that work has evolved through the course of your career in journalism and the work that you're doing now with Braver Angels. Yeah, I mean, it really was, it sharpened into something awesome because of journalism, because journalism is about hearing other people's stories and then hoping against hope that you can somehow transmit it through media to lots of strangers who didn't get to meet this person, who didn't get to have a conversation. I've always taken that, first I've always marveled at that, that we trust anyone to do that, you know, and then that we've built this beautiful profession and craft and responsibility and democratic tool, (laughs) essential, essential tool of, of this type of storytelling that is so concerned with getting somebody right so that we can all learn from each other and remain a good society. I think that that's just so important and so beautiful when you really stop to think about it. So it, it all really was born from that, the exercise of having conversations over and over and over again for years and years and years with different kinds of people to understand them and not to judge them. Uh, so that you can transmit them to others. And it turns out that the world right now is in a place where conversations of understanding without judgment are rare. Uh, Some people aren't sure why they matter (laughs) in certain contexts. And there's compelling cases for that 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 many people make. And the case for listening to understand uh, doesn't always get made. very strongly uh, in in times that are so stressed out and and so fearful and anxious. So the last few years has been about me obsessing with what that takes. Um, Not not just making the case, but but learning how to do it when when things are so stressed. And so it's listening past all of our resistance. Yeah. And and is there there a difference uh, between listening past that resistance as you you just described and and listening when you're just when you're trying to get information from a story or it's a a journalist source relationship as opposed to you know to people who who are having a dialogue going into it or maybe not knowing that they might disagree oh yeah no absolutely i mean if it's the if it's the profession and the craft you know then we go in going all right i'm here to hear who this person is no matter what um i do I, I do share many concerns out there that even professional listeners in journalism have resistance um, to listening to some groups of people, to some beliefs. And we are also scared about the future of our democracy. I mean, quite a lot. <laughs> and we are also very vulnerable to the effects of polarization in our world. And we need to be very aware of what it takes to overcome uh those effects so that we can continue to listen as, to listen, to understand as the first mission. Um, but again, it's gotten very complicated, hasn't it? So, so even when we are doing it for 
for the sake of understanding, because that's what we do. Uh, we always have to respond to our time and the particular needs of the humans in our time uh, and, the, and the citizens and the locals and the residents and the neighbors. So how do we do that? How do we balance all the different things that are, that are being um, smushed together uh, under so much pressure is, is a really tough question and a tender one. Yeah. Yeah. And you have so many good practical tips and tricks uh, throughout the book. Maybe we'll, we'll get to some of those uh, throughout the, the course of this conversation. But I, I have one more question for you before I turn things over to Andrew. And that is, you know, my day job is at a research center on democracy. I spend a lot of time in the bridge building community as, as others who are with us today may also do. And I have found that there tends to be a lot of preaching to the choir in this work. So people joining dialogues and conversations who are already inclined to want to practice that curiosity, to practice that sense of, of greater empathy and, and all these types of things. Uh, you know, I wonder um, how, how you think about that dynamic and if, if there are any ways or, or any thoughts you have about how to get beyond that. It is sort of a, a silo uh, uh, in its own way, how to sort of move move out of that. Mm, you mean sort of move this conversation past the people who've been having it for years and years and years? Correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I work at Braver Angels, which is the nation's largest grassroots uh, nonprofit and a nonpartisan one working cross-partisan working to depolarize America. And, uh, what, what I've, I've, I've sort of lived that answer, which is that a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't come into this are coming into this because of the pain that they feel in their lives, uh, because of the confoundedness and the broken relationships, uh, because the stress about their country, if, if that's what's bringing them to this, uh, is, is running up against their awareness that the ways in which they learn about other people just don't seem right. They seem broken. And I take a lot of hope every day from the people who come at this completely from outside the bridge building space. They are just in towns and cities across the country and they are saying enough. Um, many of them are advocates and activists in their own right, and they see the dysfunction and how how broken things are. And I love that. I do, because I think when when these conversations spill to the level of movement outside of the people who professionally try to safeguard our society and democracy and journalists and others, uh, that first of all, that's when we know we really have a problem. Um, but secondly, that's when we get some of the most creative solutions from outside of our silos. Yeah, I appreciate that moment because, uh, you know, actually, you know, that's the whole purpose of Gather is to be able to find ways that we can learn from others. Um, and I appreciate it. And I, Jenna had mentioned about, uh, you know, having strategies um, in the book that so, the, your book is so filled with them. And I appreciate how you easily outlined them. And I recognize that one of the strategies is to ask that critical question of how do you how did you come to believe what you believe? Um, which is again so so critical, but I'm I'm curious about. But then what, right? Like after you pose that question, what if what if the curiosity isn't a shared value, mm. um, right? When maybe there comes a point when the argument isn't about differences of opinion or beliefs, mm -hmm. but perhaps truth and maybe disinformation. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, like, what do you do with that then? Yeah, that is that is one of the most challenging questions uh, to all of this. 
we, we want reciprocity. Uh, and there is, there is an assumption, right? That curiosity is not worth practicing if you're not practicing it together, that it won't be effective. I do, I do question that assumption. Um, and I would challenge it. There's also an assumption that curiosity is uh, a val Like you, you mentioned it as a value. I've also heard of it as a personality trait. Some people are more naturally curious than others. Um, I don't see a lot of evidence for that. I think that it is a practice and that we get better at it the more we practice it. Uh, places that I see hope. I think that curiosity is uh, contagious. And when you model it in a conversation, you can't control whether the other people will pick up on some of the same tactical manifestations of curiosity, uh, your language, the way you present your opinion, but it really can catch on. Uh, so many of the tips in the book include things like you know, when you share an opinion, when you present an opinion, present it not as the truth, right? A lot of us think, well, if I share my opinion with confidence, that's how, you know, people know that that's, that's how I can hold my conviction. I have to share my opinion with a lot of confidence. And so I have to say it absolutely as if it's absolute truth. Uh, but of course there's many levels of this, right? And you can say, I think that instead of saying this is, you can say, I think that this is, and you can go on down. But I think one of the strongest ways to share an opinion is as a, as a snapshot of what's in your own mind. You know, when I think about, about abortion now, here's what's coming up for me. Here, here's what's in my mind right now. And what I've found and many people have found is there's mirror mirroring going on here. You present your opinion that way. It is more likely that the other person will present their opinion in the same way. It is not, however, guaranteed. Uh, so, so again, a lot of people face that challenge of, uh, and I hear this all the time, I've been so curious with this person or on this issue with these people, and they will not be curious back. They're just talking at me. They seem to just get angry. And this is where I think we run into a principle of, of human nature that is tough to accept, which is that people uh, will not hear unless they're heard. And you don't know the ways in which someone else feels unheard or projects onto the world around them a sense that they are not being, they are not being seen. And it's so frustrating for them. Mm -hmm. uh, it, this gets really tricky because of course, nobody has a monopoly on not being understood in today's world lots of people feel misunderstood. So you get one person who feels misunderstood in one way with another person who feels misunderstood in another way. And they both think that they have the monopoly <laughs> and that they should be getting more of the curiosity. Right. And, 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 and of course, a lot of that certainty about who should be more curious comes from our silos to begin with. So it becomes a blocker to even engaging with each other um, because we, we, we see the other as just, you, you have to see me first before I can see you. And that becomes the detente. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really tricky. You also mentioned misinformation and truth, and we can we can jump into that if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, let's jump into that. Seems apropos. Um, can you repeat <laughs> the question though? Like, bring me back to yeah, no, bring me back to. Well, I think it was it was um sure yeah it's it uh, what I, the way I framed it was that you know there comes a point when the argument isn't about differences of opinion or beliefs but truth and disinformation. Mm -hmm. So you know like, what do you do with the supporters of QAnon, for example? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I suppose it begins with saying there is no blanket prescription for this, as, as everyone, I think, feels and knows intuitively. There's, there's no such thing as here's the script, follow it. Uh, that just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, plus, individual people come into these things with extraordinarily different levels of difficulty, uh, according to their identity, their position, who's around them, um, all kinds of things. So with that, <laughs> with that said, uh, I'll borrow my friend Buster Benson's framework that I think is so useful. Uh, he wrote a book called Why Are We Yelling? And he says that the conversations we have are often uh, across disagreement are often about three things. It's either what is true or what is meaningful or what is useful. So 
uh, as journalists in particular, but many people, uh, we really gravitate toward the conversation about what is true. Uh, in a lot of ways, that feels like the only conversation, the most important conversation. When it comes to disagreement in a time of lots of distrust, it is not, I would wager, the most important conversation. The most important conversation is what is meaningful. So when we do get stuck on, but that's not true, but that's not true, but QAnon is total, like, what is that? All we want to say is to be the broken record, but you're wrong, but that's not true. And we don't know how to get past that. The way to get past it is to have the conversation about what is meaningful. You mentioned before the, the tip in my book that I go into at quite at some length about ask how people came to believe what they believe uh, instead of why. Uh, that way they don't just give you their reasons and borrow talking points that they can take shelter under and then throw them at you and then you throw them back. And, uh, you, you, we, we do get stuck on reason and fact. As important as fact is, tossing them at each other is like throwing grenades between trenches. It doesn't get us anywhere. We have to have the conversation about what is meaningful. Why? Because of trust. The conversation about what is true will never be collective without trust. That means that the conversation about what is true will never be complete. If it's not collective, it can't be complete. So that's what I think is ultimately the issue here is we can continue telling stories, right, to the people who have earned our trust by sharing our facts all day long, but we won't have the whole truth because we are not actually including um, the voices, we have dismissed a lot of voices and a lot of lives from conversations because they are not affirming our facts. That cannot be a reason to dismiss people. It just can't. Great. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, this, this notion of, of dismissing people and, you know, no one has, has a monopoly on feeling misunderstood. I, I, I agree with, with all of that, but I think there are also, you know, there, there are you know, power structures in our society around race, class, gender. And so I, I wonder how you square those two things or, you know, how, how you think about them. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of different ways, I, I struggle with these kinds of conversations because there's only time for me to approach something from one or two angles and there's a thousand, um, <laughs> but let's see what comes up for me right now. Um, so I think here of the power of conversation, uh, I have I have a couple chapters in the book where I try, <laughs> try to explain how powerful I, I really believe conversation is and, and the evidence sort of shows it. So I'll, I'll begin with sort of the primitive. Um, when you think about, when you really stop and think about all of the extraordinarily sophisticated micro decisions that a human being makes just to have a conversation, it's wild how we have evolved this set of skills. It, there, there are so many levels of neurological activity of, of empathy and compassion and concern and, and our own internal dialogues intersecting with whatever's actually being said. It's wacky sophisticated. And the fact that we all come equipped with the skill at that baseline level is just like, so cool. The other thing I'll say is people do approach each other with lots of different power imbalances. And, you know, and you can pick your, if it's a one-on-one, -on -one, you can pick your two people, you know, here's, here's someone who's black with this history. Here's someone who's gay with that history. Here's someone who's conservative and rural with that history. And, and you bring them together. And what they, what they want to do is bring into the conversation, all, all of their, their projections and assumptions about that power dynamic. That's what we want to do. Uh, because why not? It exists in history and exists in our world. We have to bring it into everything, but actually I find conversations to be extraordinarily liberating because things really can disappear and it can be 
two human beings just talking and learning from each other. Now, I know that sounds blasphemous. How can you possibly, how can you possibly like leave behind this other stuff? Well, I'm not saying that you do, but I'm saying that you can. And even if you do it for a moment, even if you do it for 30 minutes and you meet on that, on that very special context of a conversation, a, a place that, will ne- that has never existed before and will never exist again, you where you are in this moment, them where they are in this moment, it's extraordinary. And, and hopefully we've all had the experience of having conversations with people we find to be very different, even on a power dynamic, but at least we're approaching each other with parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, where there's, where there's, a, there's a level playing field on what can be said. So for example, like, you know, obviously your boss and your employee, that's a little tricky for obvious reasons. Um, you know, uh, obviously if someone is writing a Facebook post and then someone is commenting on the Facebook post, I don't know, they can ban or hide that comment or delete it and that kind of thing. But, but but you can actually share power in a conversation in an extraordinary way, regardless of the power imbalances that exist outside. This is what gives me hope because this is what makes me think that, that the context of conversation is one of the most powerful ways we can be seen by other people, by individuals. And if we have fewer of those or we don't know how to have them, we lose an extraordinary tool to hack through all of those barriers, even if just for an instant. Yeah, totally. No, I, I appreciate that. And uh, I think it actually uh, leads very nicely uh, into Andrew's next question. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, go back and a little bit closer to the book as well. First of all, I just, I, I, I think I failed to even thank you for putting together, for putting together and writing this book. Um, I think I res- it resonated with me so much um, from your experience, you know, in addition to also my being a, a big TNG fan, um, uh, I, I hear my dad <laughs> in conversations uh, with my, you know, with your parents, right? Like he too also voted for Trump in 2016. I'm actually don't know what he did in 2020. At least he didn't admit to what he really did. Mm-hmm. But I'm, but I'm curious about your parents' uh, reaction to the book if they read it or even in a mm-hmm. manuscript form. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that much of what you wrote about it is something that came up in conversation with your parents. Mm-hmm. Perhaps some of the arguments with your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, perhaps nothing surprised them. But am I wrong? Was there an, an intuit moment for them when they read the book? Yeah, uh, they read a lot of drafts. Um, it was very important to me to make sure I got them right. Uh, I was extremely lucky that from the very beginning, when I told them that I wanted to write a book, they were nothing but supportive. Uh, just completely. Yeah. Say anything you want. Well, yeah, it's fine. Um, there there's, we, we benefit from a really trusting, wonderful relationship that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Um, I do remember that there's a scene toward the beginning of the book where I talk about the night that I called my mother uh, after Trump had won the 2016 election. So the night of November 8th. And I don't know quite what made me call my mother, like my husband and babies had gone to sleep at that point. I was downstairs with the bottle of wine we didn't drink and just wondering when I, how I was going to crawl off to bed after this. And I had called her. Um, and uh yeah, so I so I talk about the scene and, and, and I never thought of it that way moment that I had at that time. But when my mother read the draft of that scene, um, I had remembered it in a particular way. And, and I had said, you know, I was surprised about Trump's victory. And mom, you were surprised too, of course. And mom's like, I wasn't surprised. It's like, you weren't? You, weren't you shocked? No. You know, it was all you liberals who were surprised. 
I, I knew exactly what was going to happen. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it was, it was this sort of like alarming. Oh yeah. You know, we hear what we want to hear sometimes, even when we're trying to listen really well. And she was like, no, I never told you I was surprised because I wasn't I was like, but I remember I really didn't. And I thought about it. It's like, she never did tell me that. Did she? I just, I just, I just assumed. Um, anyway, that that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, but there's, there's all kinds of other places, but most of the feedback they had on the drafts were, there's a scene with my grandmother's dining room table in Mexico, you know, where they're like, no, 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 no. The salt shaker wasn't there. It was over here. And the, the table was this big and that thing. So they were more about, let me get this right on sort of the accurate details of this. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's been, it's, it's, it's been conversation starters for us on a lot of things. That's great. No, it's great to hear. I did, uh, some great questions are coming in through the chat already. And I know, I think the one that even Jessica Maria Ross had asked um, kind of speaks to what um, Jenna, I think had you had prepped up for your next question. So I'll, I'll let you ask that one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we've just talked about this, this, this question of, of power. And um, I also think a lot about what role journalism can play in, in bridge building work, at least in, in my mind, the kind of the circles I travel and they are still very separate for the most part, but, you know, Moni, I think you are a great example of, of how the two can, can come together uh, and how so many of these skills, curiosity, conversation, uh, you know, really do carry through our, maybe a bridge in and of themselves. And in some ways, I, I wonder uh, how you, think about the, the role that journalism and journalists can or should play in this broader bridge building movement? Yeah. Um, so, so first, I guess I'll say that, you know, while I was writing the book and since I've published it and, and been um, talking to folks and answering kinds of questions from different angles, I'm still very much learning and none of this is a final answer to me. And, and I've had to really wrestle with a lot of things and, and try to try to figure out like, is there, what's going on here? So um, I think here's, here's something that I've thought about a lot recently. Um, you know, journalism is, is an extremely important institution for truth um, in a society. It, it is, it is sort of the, the truth building institution where we're out there making sure we're accurate and responsible. Uh, we're out there making sure people in power are not hiding away, doing bad things, um, exposing them if they are, et cetera. We're, we, we've, we're really good at that. And we take that very seriously truth. So of course, in the last few years, uh, where truth has been challenged in, in enormous ways, and we haven't known what to do with really, we're trying, uh, you know, we're, we're extremely scared about what's going on with truth. Um, there is also trust. And I've been thinking to myself, what is society's trust building institution? And I've come up a little bit blank. Where is it now that we need it? Because, because again, in, in my view, we can't build truth until we do trust. So how, how, do, who does that? And so among the open questions in my mind are, can journalists also be the trust building institution? Because if we are, we're going to have to let go. This is scary. We're going to have to let go of some of our, some of our attachments to truth. Ooh, that's scary. Um, we're gonna have to let go of some of our attachments to fact and the idea that everything is facts and there's no room for anything else. We're gonna have to let go of that. So I don't actually know that journalism is the trust building institution at all. And I think an answer that is currently leading in my mind, but again, this is all evolving, 
is that people are the trust building institutions. People's relationship are and have always been the trust building institutions, but we don't think of it as an institution because it's just people. And we don't think of it as important because it happens on such a small scale. Um, I get I get that criticism all the time. Well, this bridge building thing, it's not going to work. You're not going to hit the media. What about these big institutions? I'm like, yo, what are people powerless? The hell are you talking about? People are everything. People are everything. And we continually discount the power of a conversation or the power of an unbroken relationship or amended one. It's everything. It's everything. The brokenness in our society begins and ends with the, the frayed threads between us that hold us together across differences because we see each other despite them. And so, yeah, so I'm actually kind of at a place I think people are the trust building institution, but journalists better help. I think that's such a perfect segue in terms of just even thinking about community-centered journalism, right? Like if we, if we as an industry start to really bring in the voices and really empower communities to tell the stories and produce journalism with us because that's that's absolutely that was going to be my mess and then my next question but you answered it but you know in terms of what comes to mind for you when you when you read and hear about the dysfunction even in congress right in the senate like when one trust declining institution is reporting reporting on another trust declining institution (laughs) where does that leave us right unless we can really bring in the power of the people uh, and as Jessica and Peggy has resonated in the chat, right? It's like people are everything and that to really go, go, go. And, and as Peggy mentioned, um, going with the meaning and understanding of, of each other right. as a society, as a group seems to be one potential solution. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping. Um, but we, we do, we live, we live in sort of discursive times where again, it just feels like if we're, if so much is so high stakes and we're not having as many conversations as possible about what is right and wrong and what is true and false, then what are we doing? And, and it's like, well, what we're doing is building trust. What we're doing is allowing ourselves to even get everybody's concerns and stories on the table at all. And we're not going to get to a complete truth without that. We're just not. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, Speaking about the public, um, I'm curious about your range of public responses to the book. Um, Hmm. Would you be willing to share one that gives you hope and which I'm certain you've received plenty of? Um, And if you're open to it, perhaps one that was either discouraging Mm. or even worrisome, Mm. right? Um, Yeah. Um, All right. Well, among the hopeful things, uh, one is I'm starting to build sort of a, 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 a... a little bit of a database, I suppose. I've, I've done a lot of podcasts and a lot of media of who's who's left leaning, who's center independent, and then right, uh, because it's it's kind of cool to be able to have this conversation um, with with media that are all across that spectrum. Uh, just yesterday, you know, had had one with someone who's who's uh, more in the politically homeless space. I don't know if you all have heard that, but that's actually that's a political leaning now, politically homeless. It's fascinating. Uh, libertarian this morning. Um, <laughs> but but it's really cool that uh, everyone agrees about the brokenness and, and about the people being the solution, uh, including, by the way, the most maybe famous person that I've talked with is Glenn Beck. Uh, and I did his podcast and it was awesome. <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> he said at one point, he really got humble and, and said some, some amazing things, but he was talking about how, you know, he's like, yeah, that's the, he's like, that's what, that's what I say. You know, that people shouldn't just take my opinion. He said, I know I have a lot of followers out there, 
but, but you don't own anything you haven't thought through yourself. And I thought that was so cool that he said that because that's sort of the commentator thing, right? The assumption we make about all commentators is that they're out there trying to, anyway, uh, he humanized commentators for me in a way I hadn't, I hadn't thought about. Um, so that's really cool. Also the feedback that I've gotten, uh, you know, just the other day from someone saying, this is, this is saving a relationship I have with, with a relative. So I, I hear those sorts of things, uh, as far as yeah. discouraging feedback, I mean, the, the big challenges continue to be okay, but, but how can any of this make any difference without more systemic change, uh, particularly in, in media and in politics? Those are the two big institutions that are contributing to polarization in all these ways. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of good criticism about like, look, this doesn't add up to a whole lot unless you can tell us, like I have the answers, you can tell us how, how to change those institutions. Um, so so that that comes in a good bit. Um, also, you know, people, uh, a couple of folks have, have pointed out you know, the, I, I wish there had been more stories in this book. Where where are the more stories and the more examples? And me too. And I've told them, yeah, me too. I I want more stories and examples. And and I'm trying to collect them as much as I can. They are harder to find. I don't think because they don't exist, but because we haven't learned to value this uh, the way that we ought to. So I'm hoping that this is what helps surface more and more and more of these stories of, of people doing uh, amazing things. So one last thing I'll say is just the other day, I met a woman named Susan and she told me that she has a cousin's group that has been meeting for years now. And um, she was so enthusiastic about the ways that they can talk of all the craziest and hardest things. And they're completely all on different sides of the divide. Um, she's, she's doing like a letter to the editor at New York times. that's getting published about it and whatnot, but, um, but she's inviting me to come in and, and yeah, was saying that like the big tip that that it was really good that she wanted to like loan me if I need it is is get um, what can you say yes to to get people who disagreed to look at that question what can you say yes to and that with almost every issue if you kind of go up high enough level you'll find something you do agree on and I thought that was really cool so anyway I'm I'm hearing about all kinds of people going yes 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 I do this in my family I do this in my neighborhood in my community no one's celebrating them I shouldn't say that not no one but it's not being celebrated enough. That's right. Right. We're also hung up about like some rich billionaire trying to figure out, you know, trying to learn to learn about like free speech yeah. and controlling democracy. It just it's so f- fearful that we should really be amplifying these kinds of conversations and right. this kind of work. So I appreciate all the work that you are doing to to really make that happen. I know Jenna has one final follow up and then we're going to we'd love to open yeah. it up to the to the group. Yeah. And it's it's easier to write about problems than about solutions, right? I think we all we all know that uh, here today. Um, so, uh, you know, we usually end uh, every episode of, of the New Books Network asking about what's next. So I know this book uh, has just come out earlier this year, but it seems like you're already hearing a lot of really interesting feedback and are, are starting to form kernels of ideas about how this work and on all these contacts you're making might continue. So I'm wondering if, you know, where, how far along that is, or, you know, what you're thinking about as the next iteration of this work. Mm. Well, um, one thing I'm really excited about that, that is part of my work, but not the book in particular is uh, Braver Angels just launched Braver Politics, which is an initiative where we take everything that we've learned from the grassroots workshops across the country to the halls of power. So uh, my colleagues were telling me that yesterday there were workshops with members of Congress um, and that tears were shed. And I cannot wait to hear more details about that. Uh, so that's really exciting to me. And local legislatures are getting involved and whatnot. So I'm 
as the election comes up, I think that's going to take um, a lot of my attention in a really fun way and an interesting way. Um, but also I'm, I'm very mindful of kind of like what you said before, it's the conversation about this. It's, it is maturing, I think, and that's great. So we can, we, you know, the case is being made. Now we really have to get to the how. And my book has a lot about the how, but, but, but I don't know, like, can I, uh, can, can we, can we work together to make the how more spreadable and tactical and findable and modelable? Can there be more um, podcasts and events where this stuff is not just, oh, let's talk about how important this is, but we actually do it in front of each other. I think that would be amazing. I think we're missing models and I'm really excited about elevating that and championing that. Yeah, me too. And and thank okay. you for all the, the work that you and, and Braver Angels have done so far in this space. I, I think you're definitely a leader and innovator into going beyond, like you said, just talking about these things and actually doing them and coming up with new ways to, to put them into practice. Thank you. That was fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, exploring those models with you and with the, within this entire group. In fact, I think there are some um, really great examples, and um, I'm also curious of what that database looks like when you finally mm. uh, when you when you finally fill it out even more, because I think mm-hmm. there's there's a there's a nugget of of a solution there, right, to be able to help bridge and find those common grounds. So. Uh, so yeah, at this time, I'd love to open it up. Um, it's going to be interesting because this is, I think, this is the first time that we're opening it up, knowing that this is going to be part of the podcast as well with Jenna. So uh, we'll see how it goes. But Juan Pablo, please unmic and uh, uh, ask your question. It's good to see you, by the way, Juan. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, my name is Juan Pablo. I'm a reporter and I work also in a research center called Eviction Lab, where we do data research related to housing and evictions across the country. Yeah, and my question is, is um, I, we, we read this paper that maybe you've seen coming from University of Georgia that talks about exposure to information about COVID-19 racial disparities and how it reduced empathy, reduced even support for safety precautions. And the researchers even went to a point to, to say that highlighting racial disparities could like, there could be a paradox there and perpetrate racial inequalities. Hmm. So the, wow. there was some talk about it on, 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 on Twitter about this and everyone seems super clueless about what to do with this. Like, okay, wow. the media has been doing much more reporting than maybe what we were used to before related to his racial disparities, but it's actually having the opposite effect. Wow. So yeah, I was curious if, if you if you have any ideas about this, if you read it, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, any ideas of how to keep doing this, this reporting, but at the same time, you know, creating positive change and, and actually having an impact. Yeah, I, I have not read that report. That's fascinating, but, but this is the first time hearing about it. Um, I mean, I just have a lot of questions. So I, I would, I don't know if this was already done or is in the works, but, but it just feels like, okay, a a new, a new inquiry, what's going on, what's going on in the minds and hearts of folks when they receive this information. Um, In my research, I've found that to be actually one of the most like interesting things to think about is, um, you know, in journalism and information, we, we always think about, well, 
how does the brain logically receive information and how should it, right? But we are, we are minds and hearts and experiences uh, all brought into when we receive information. So what, what is being activated uh, inside people when they see this? What is invisible right now that we're not seeing, that, that are certain reactions or concerns that come up? Um, so I just have a lot of questions. And, and I don't know that speculating on that is very useful. I think it's probably go and figure it out. Like, let's go talk to people and figure it out. What is going on? Um, and can we create the context where they can actually tell? They can even say what's going on in their minds and hearts. Um, I don't know that because it's going to be tricky and, and people will be like ready to accuse each other of hateful things. So, oof. Um, anyway, that that feels to me like the challenge there. But again, I'm only hearing about it now. Good morning. And I welcome Joy to get on the mic. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Joy Mayer, and I run a project called Trusting News. And I am such a fan of the book and so excited to have conversations about what it means for journalism specifically. Mm. And I wonder if we could address that question of how and think about it for journalism. What, how do journalists make people less curious? And what should we do mm. to make people more curious? Yeah. So Joy, you, you know, you and I can talk about this all day long because there's so many ideas out there. Um, and journalists and journalism, um, the, the theater of our work happens in so many different stages. So there's the, the interview, for example, where only there's a journalist and a source. There's that. There's the selection of stories. Who gets to decide? We've talked a lot about that in engagement circles. Uh, there's the actual writing and production of the story. What language do we use? In each of those stages. There's a huge depth of stuff going on, I believe, that, to use your phrasing, which is a compelling one, um, might be making people less curious uh, that we need to hack and, and do something about. So let's jump into the language. Um, I think that there's already been plenty of conversation about this, but just from the science of community and how communities form, the more time that people spend talking to, you know, a limited group of other people, aka a community, uh, about certain things, and the more, you know, differentiated they become from other communities, the more that they will create differentiated language, where words will mean something to that community that they do not mean to somebody else. And an enormous challenge for journalists who, hopefully there's enough of us out there, still intend to write stories that can be understood by many communities. What that means, thanks to the internet and the volume and the pace at which languages develop now, it's insane. It's exponential to anything that used to happen before, is we have to somehow become fluent in all these languages and, and what? Like create a language that is actually universal and can be understood. We have to know when a word is uh, triggering to one side, but not to another. We have to be extraordinarily mindful now of what we even name an issue. So, you know, you write an article about voting rights, you should know that for many conservatives, calling that whole issue voting rights might miss their concerns about voting integrity or voting security. That's tricky, right? So how do you, what do you call this whole thing? Uh, election integrity is something I've, I've heard out there that might include everybody's concerns, you know, but still people are going to feel like, but some of these concerns are just more important and the others don't matter. Okay, but are you willing to say that? Is that what your audience wants? Do you feel like you have to be loyal to that audience or you're going to die as an, uh, as an outlet? So that's just jumping in for a moment into the language piece. But we could do this, uh, we could do this all day with, with lots of other things. 
Could be good. I, I could also just listen to you and uh, enjoy talk all day as well. So I just want to bookmark that. Uh, speaking of languages, the and this is going to be this is going to reveal my geekiness uh, with you, Moni, in terms of TNG. But uh, I, I reflect on that one episode called Darmok. I don't know if you remember that, but Darmok and Jalad when Picard yes. had to remember had Bags to recognize of mostly water. Yes. someone's language. Yes, yes, it was awesome. yes. Anyway, that, so. that comes to mind because it it it's also understanding the nuance right of mm-hmm. that language and the meaning behind those languages. Anyway, I'll, I'll end my geekiness here to uh, to invite Mike Fancher on the mic uh, to ask this question. Andrew, that's so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what Darmok is, but. <laughs> uh, but uh, the uh, Moni, the, the the notion of I think it's pronounced sobremesa that you had described in the book that uh, uh, you know on the table sort of thing <clears throat> reminded me of something Andrew and I worked on many years ago. There was a, a project called Bring It to the Table. Mm-hmm. Andrew, do you remember that? And there was this wonderful video about how you could bring people to the table and find common ground. And I showed it to my wife and some friends who are very politically active. And their reaction was, we don't want to understand these people. We need to crush them. Right. I think this was probably right after Trump's election. But if they felt that way then, imagine how they feel today. Yeah. And so in, in terms of just this sense, this fear that our very way of, of, of governing ourselves collectively is at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you keep your own optimism about that? And what's your sense of urgency about how this whole notion of curiosity and, and, and coming together and conversing, um, can, can it happen fast enough to save us, I guess, is what mm. I'm wondering. Oh, man. I mean, I have to believe it can or else I wouldn't be working on it. Uh, so I do believe it can. I have to. Uh, I have moments of, of extreme pessimism. Um, I know that the election is coming up, so I see a weird sort of deadline. <laughs> not a deadline, not that we're going to solve all this by November, but it's about difficulty level. It is, it is going to be a lot harder to get people to consider this reframing of, of what's really uh, at threat and how we can fix it. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder when the headlines are just full of, you know, threat, 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 if this candidate wins the election, threat, threat, threat. Uh, so once that dominates the conversation again, in it, it, it like this high volume, um, it's just going to be that much harder for a lot of people. So for me, it kind of feels like, all right, you know, <laughs> push some of this as much as we can share the stories um, from the grassroots of people making serious progress in, with each other in their own communities and families. And, and hope that that sparks enough, right? That, 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 that lights enough bulbs that by the time we're awash in, in this stuff that carries us away emotionally, um, we have some new resilience. Um, that, that's what I'm hoping. And I know that, you know, it's very easy to blame politicians and we should <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, but, but I've talked to enough politicians one-on-one who are so sick and tired of this and, and they, they hate it. They can't stand it for a second, but they have to play the game. You know, just like journalists, right? At, at really influential media. It's like, they know that media contributes to polarization, but they don't want to, you know, it's the same thing. Um, so I get a lot of optimism there too. What I said before about how ev- people are everything that goes for the people in politics and the people in media and in powerful places, even the commentators, you know, it's like, so, so the fact that I think you can pluck a lot of individuals out and they'll all say that 
we need to fix this and that they have some ideas. Um, gives me a lot of hope. It's just whether we can even see each other through the cacophony of our fear. Um, because it is, the f- fear is projection. You know, fear is about things that haven't happened yet, that we're already playing the movies in our minds and they're terrifying us. And that makes us inactive and uncreative. And we need to snap out of it. I see one more hand up, Praveen. Um, so we're going to go to Praveen. And I also wanted to invite Peggy to share. He's, she's been sharing some great stuff within the Zoom chat that um, folks, because this is going to end up as a podcast, I want to make sure that we capture a little bit of that from Peggy um, to be able to be an audio. Uh, we'll hear that um, after Praveen asks his question. And I know Jenna has one more to, to close us out for, for this hour. So Praveen, please. Great. Thank you. Hi, Moni. Uh, so uh, I'm curious, what is your take on the root causes of what is causing this? And by this, I mean the problem we are talking about here, polarization, siloing, difficulty to have conversations, people being more isolated in their uh, you know, heads and in their bubbles. Uh, you must have thought about that. What's like yeah. in this unique moment of time, what's causing this? Yeah, I mean, there, there's levels of this. Uh, the first part of my book is called SOS, uh, and it's about sorting, othering, and siloing. And I go into the sociological, the research behind those three things and how they add up to a call for help. Um, but you go beneath that, and I think that the two big things that keep us in, in curious, you know, on a conceptual level, we talked about one of them already, fear. Fear, uh, you can't wonder about what something you think is out to get you, and you can't blame anybody um, for not wanting to be curious about people and perspectives that terrify them. It's, it's extremely hard. Um, and then certainty. Uh, certainty, once you think you know, you won't think to ask. Uh, so all the conclusions that we draw about each other because of some thought piece we read on the internet, that makes journalists less curious, that makes people less curious. And then we're not asking questions that we ought to be. So both those things really suck. <laughs> they really suck, but they're also really good. Fear protects us. Fear makes us sure that we can survive and feel safe. That's, that's critical. Um, and certainty is good because gosh, I'm not going to sit here and ask questions of someone pointing a gun at my head, right? Like I'm, I'm sure they want to hurt me and I'm going to get out of here. Um, but I heard this quote earlier today, um, save your fears for danger. What was the quote? Hold on. Cause this is, don't waste your fears on anything but danger. And, uh, I think what's going on right now is there's the perception and there's the reality and there's a huge gap. Um, the, there's a perception of danger that I think covers a lot more ground than what could maybe rationally be justified as being dangerous. So we need to close that gap um, so that we can not waste our fears on something that is not dangerous. Um, oh gosh, but uh, right, but, but I'll say this, um, deeper than that, if I go deeper than that as to what's causing this, and this is the first time I'm realizing this, it's just the world. I just realized it's just the world. The, the reason we go to fear and we manufacture certainty is because of stress and anxiety. And the reason we feel socially stressed and anxious is because there are actually really big things changing in our world. The norms around how we see each other, our culture. I mean, every cultural institution is being enormously disrupted. I mean, a lot of us remember how social media disrupted communication, right? What's going on now is that culture itself is being disrupted by, by the, our ability to express ourselves more to each other. This is a huge challenge. So in some ways I'm thinking, oh yeah, this was bound to happen. This is bound to happen. I mean, we were going to get the latent shock of all these voices coming out and changing the way that we, our world needs to be ordered. But who decides how our world is going to be ordered when all this, 
you know, when the snow globe settles down, when does that even happen? And what kind of damage is going to be caused in the interim? Uh, and we all have to figure that out. And so we're dealing with power dynamics. You know, we're dealing with conventional ways we we looked at groups of people and how they all need to evolve. It's it's hard. And we are really stressed and people are extremely threatened. So I think that's what's causing it at the end of the day. It's the anxiety and the stress leading us to fear and certainty, leading us to less curiosity, leading to all these existential crises across our institutions. It's not the perception that it's real. I mean, we just had oh. millions of people die for, you know, from COVID. Climate yeah. change is causing uh, a lot of people to be stressed out and different yeah. people are stressed out for different confluence of factors. But the That's stress, right. anxiety, fears, those are real. The changes are real. The fears are real. Fear, fear is what we feel. Um, but I don't I, I believe that a lot of that fear is more than we is more than in, than is justified, but what by what is actually in people's hearts. We make a lot of assumptions about what is was in people's hearts and what motivates people without knowing. Uh, that's where the certainty has really killed us, because then we look at people who who ought to be collaborators as enemies, and that's just shooting ourselves in the foot. Thank you. Thanks for, for providing so much hope, Moni, on that. And um, and 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 I want to again invite Peggy to uh, share some of what she's been thinking and what's coming up for her during this conversation. Thanks, thanks for that, Andrew. And I, I wanna pick up on the theme you were just talking about, Monica, because um, this whole sense of anxiety and stress that's very real in our, our world today. Uh, I, I have found myself thinking more and more and frankly beginning to educate myself more and more about trauma sensitive approaches to whatever we're doing. Mm, uh, yeah two books, one trauma-sensitive mindfulness uh, written about a psychologist. It's, it's, it's around approaches to, you know, people who can't deal with, with um, meditation, uh, traditional approaches to meditation because of what they're dealing with. But the basic uh, tenets and coaching that he has around that, I think could be useful for journalists in mm -hmm. thinking about their approaches to stories so that um, uh, rather than triggering people in the way headlines are written or stories are told, uh, approaching it through uh, a lens of, of trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's one avenue I'd offer up. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and another book I've, I've haven't dived in too much yet, but looks promising is called Healing Collective Trauma. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing was something I alluded to in the chat that uh, I thought um, Amanda Ripley's original Complicating the Narratives article spoke to quite brilliantly. She talked about um, research of writing stories in different ways mm -hmm. and the finding of the research that if you write your story from uh, here's what side A says, here's what side B says, what you end up with is creating conditions for people to fight with each other. Mm -hmm. If you tell that same story in a nuanced way and the practical way I tend to think about it is find a third way a kind of transcendent include so that there aren't just here's idea one and idea two but here's the you know the nuances of it mm -hmm. then you actually evoke curiosity to joy's original uh question mm -hmm. and the more journalists look for what's the third perspective in here 
Mm -hmm. uh, or how do I transcend what's the more important to the thing you were talking about, meaning, mm -hmm. um, and right towards meeting and providing context and understanding uh, the more opportunity. So those were the thoughts that came to mind as I was listening. Thank you. No, those are great. And it also makes me think about values. So uh, what, what, I, what I call the values bias is really rampant these days that, that um, if, you, if you disagree with me on something that really matters to me because of a value that I hold very dear, you must also hate that value. You, you must also, there must be an absence of that value for you when you look at this issue. And I think that, you know, that's just not true. <laughs> like we actually do all share these values and the truly wicked issues put good values into tension. So if journalists yes. can, as they try to balance out their storytelling, they can also look for what are the good values being put into tension? And if you can articulate that in a way that people on both sides of this issue or many sides of this issue can be like, oh yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Then you've done, you've done your community an enormous favor because you've, you've presented the thing that is intention that needs to be negotiated. And then you're talking about the particular stories and concerns and advocacy that each side wants to bring, but you're also leaving room for, like you said, the third way. We're not creative when we think it's either or, obviously. Sometimes the solution is, wait, have we thought about this? So you can't do that if your story is just about a battle between two sides. Yeah, and you know, that's, uh, I think, a, a nice segue uh, into my my final question before we wrap up and, and thank you again, uh, Peggy and, and, and joy and, and Michael and everyone else who has shared, uh, this has been an, an, an amazing conversation, but, uh, you know, I know I am a journalism teacher. Andrew is a journalism teacher, several others either here with us live or, or listening to this after the fact, uh, might be teachers as well. And so I think we've been talking about curiosity and all these things from a very individual perspective. How do we how do we undertake these behaviors for ourselves? I'm wondering if you've thought at all about how we might teach them to others, particularly in a, a university or, or classroom setting. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's fabulous ways to teach them. I see nothing but bridge building organizations with downloadable resources. I mean, there's so much out there. Um, but I think one thing we're, we're missing is the model. Uh, there's just not enough models uh, that will back up these tips to enough people. So I think it's just sort of theory until they see the practice. And I really think that's the most important way to teach is not enough people have the experience of first witnessing and then living this sort of exchange. Uh, and that's going to be the most important way to teach. So I think, you know, better than writing another book about it might be, can we, can we create, can we create places where more and more people can actually do this and then see that it may be not as hard as they think mm -hmm. or find ways that they can model it in their own lives, take away their own lessons. So it's the ex experiential learning, I think, is what we need to focus on. I, yeah. I have a, a dear colleague who refers to it as conversational literacy. Yeah. And it is a birthright. You said it, Monica, we all know how to do it. We do. We really it's do. Just rem remembering I, the occasions. I appreciate that challenge, Moni, in terms of let's try to create these models together or even separate and then share them and what we learned. So mm -hmm. um, uh, this, this conversation has really been inspiring and thank you a again for the book. And again, thank you for um, sharing your hour with us and Jenna. 
Yeah. And so just to uh, reiterate for everybody listening to this on the new books network, uh, Monica's book is I never thought of it that way, how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. It is out now from Ben Bella press or wherever you get your books. So uh, thank you, Moni. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Thank you everyone for joining us today. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.